This episode of In Good Company is sponsored by Aurelia Skincare, and more specifically, their CBD Super Serum, which contains pure crystallized CBD isolate. Not sure what crystallized CBD isolate is? Well, I'll tell you. It's basically the more sophisticated and far superior version of CBD oil, and essentially means that you get more exact and more effective quantities of CBD without any of the unwanted impurities that sometimes crop up in CBD oil. Aurelia's CBD Super Serum is a really lightweight and fast-absorbing, highly concentrated formula that's suspended in hyaluronic acid, which essentially floods the skin with hydration, while also helping moderate your sebum production and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. Plus, it's got really powerful anti-inflammatory benefits. What's not to love? It's super easy to incorporate into your regular skincare regime. You can just mix a couple of drops in with your favourite moisturiser or serum or facial oil, or you can also use it on its own for a more intense treatment. To get 20% off all Aurelia skincare products, including their CBD Super Serum, head to www.aureliaskincare.com and use the code IGC20 at checkout. That's www.aureliaskincare.com. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otega Uagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. On today's show, I'm having a conversation with Marjon Carlos, who was a journalist, public speaker, creative consultant, and also the most stylish woman you will ever encounter. Seriously, go check out her Instagram. This woman knows how to dress. As a journalist, Marjon's work sits squarely at the intersection of style and culture and covers a range of really fascinating topics and personalities. She was previously a senior fashion writer at Vogue and is now the editorial director at lingerie brand Cup. And her work has appeared everywhere. Elle, Refinery29, Vanity Fair, Wall Street Journal, you name it, Marjan's probably written for them. She's also the host of the quarantine breakout hit IGTV talk show, Your Favourite Auntie, which was one of my absolute favourite things to come out of the past year, and I've linked to it in the show notes. I highly recommend you get into it. I've been following Marjan's work for years, and she has long been mine and many other women's career and style inspiration. So I'm really, really pleased to be able to share this conversation with you, which, as you'll hear from the constant cackling, I really did enjoy a lot. Here's Marjan. I want to go back to kind of your early career and find out a bit about how you got into fashion journalism and also specifically, actually, what the attraction was for you. Because, you know, I've read a lot of the pieces that you've written. You know, you wrote that brilliant article for The Cut a couple of years ago, which we'll get to in a bit. But you talked about being very aware when you were a kid and a teenager that the fashion world could be very white and very exclusive and I'm just curious then what the attraction was for you, even despite that. I just was always obsessed with pop culture. I was always obsessed with style as a kid. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. And in Dallas, especially in the mid-90s, it's evolving now, but in the mid-90s, it was very isolating and very stratified by race. It literally four buckets. It was white people, black people, Mexicans, which actually now would would represent Latinx, but back then it was not diasporic, and Asians. And again, there was no diaspora at all. So I felt in a lot of ways cut off from culture. I, I felt cut off from connecting with other people. And so popular culture allowed me to connect with different ideas and musics and sounds and style. And I think that's really what always held my attention. Movies, fashion shows, books, magazines. That's what my room was full of because it was a form of escape. And I could really create a world where it was much more diverse. It was much more inclusive. Everyone was represented. And I didn't even know those words at that time. I was a kid, but that's really what I was looking for. And so fashion for me represented this opportunity to really express yourself and really just indulge in beautiful things, but also to express, you know, what's going on internally, externally, right? So I really was always just, I don't know, I was so fascinated with it. I would watch the movies, I'd watch the shows, I knew all the designers, I knew all the models, I knew all, you know, I knew all the things. It was like encyclopedia knowledge. And I wanted to work in the industry, but I didn't know in what capacity. 
And I figured, well, I'm, I love writing and I love reading and I am obsessed with these magazines. Maybe there's a future for me there. Despite the fact that it was very, very white, I felt like my voice could fit in there somehow, but I never knew how when I was younger, but I, I had a, an idea of that. Mm. It's really interesting you describing it because I think now being the age that we are and being maybe in the positions we are or in the spaces we are, I actually have forgotten slightly what it felt like to not be surrounded by like-minded people or to yes. not have <laughs> access to these worlds. Yeah. And I can suddenly kind of understand what an impression it made on like, you know, childhood or teenage Marjon seeing like this kind of ecosystem of people and values and style that really spoke to you and not necessarily having that in your day-to-day life. Is that an accurate description of it? Or am I no, I think that's a perfect example of it. You know, I have such a beautiful, strong community now of, of friends who are like-minded and, and who share the same values and principles and see me and, and we center each other. But when I was younger, I wasn't affirmed in any of those types of ways. Mass culture and, and certainly the environment that I grew up in was predominantly white. And that was the master narrative, right? And so if I watched a video of Aaliyah, I would see this black woman who was a biker cool chick who was moving and grooving in a way that I was like, I, wa- I want to do that. I want to look like that. <laughs> you know, like that shit, like that's amazing. Or, you know, if I saw like Dion from Clueless, I was like, who is that? Like, I need some box braids. I want to look like her. Who is she? Those were like very transportive vehicles for me. It allowed me to think, oh, I could be anywhere at any time. Where I am right now is just a small microcosm of where I really can go. So I use pop culture to like be transportive and escape and like think big, despite the fact that it was predominantly white at the time. And so what was your first role within fashion then? I like worked in, I like worked in a store. I like, you know, I like folded clothes of Banana Republic when I was like 16 years old because I just wanted to be near fashion in some type of way. And I was out of college. I worked at, for Zach Posen as a PR intern. So I guess that oh, would right. kind of be like my first, first fashion capital Mm -hmm. F moment. (laughs) Yeah, that was really interesting. I knew I didn't want to do PR. I'm not a PR girl, much respect to them, but it wasn't for me. But I loved the hustle. I loved the bustle. I loved how a runway show came together. I was just like, yes, I love the magic. It also showed me how unglamorous fashion is. (laughs) It's not, it's not that, you know, 90% of the time. It's a lot of work. So that was my first foray into fashion. Mm. And physical work as well. I feel like, especially when you're at the kind of, I guess as a PR intern, you are like at the bottom of the hierarchy. Like there is a lot of like schlepping (laughs) and like carrying stuff around. (laughs) Take this there. Like, you know, exactly. It was a lot of like that. And you were in the office so late and like, but I was young and I loved it and I didn't care. And then what did you do after that? I struggled for a while, you know, I kind of emphasize that a lot whenever I talk about my narrative, because it's not linear. And there were moments as I went along my way to where I am now, where I didn't know what I wanted to do. So that was a moment. I was pretty hapless in New York for about like a year and a half. I worked as a shop girl, again, in a boutique retail, and I just was piecing together a life. But the one thing that I really remember observing around me was the way that people interact with one another and the amount of gentrification that was happening in my neighborhood. I lived in Fort Greene, Brooklyn at the time. And that's changed massively. (laughs) Massively, even because I moved to New York in 2005 after I graduated from college. And it was predominantly a black neighborhood at that point. But you could tell that it was obviously changing. And now it's just a completely different place. I just remember really just looking at how different people interacted and how in New York, like black people and white people and and Latinx people and Asian people, like we were just all together. But there was just so many glaring inequities, despite the fact that like we existed together in a way that I don't think a lot of cities have in America. And so I was just really, really interested in race. And I was really interested in like how we related to one another. Did you have like an outlet to talk about that with? Were you writing for people at the time? Did you have people to discuss that with? Because I definitely feel like in my early to mid 20s, when I was suddenly becoming very aware of certain racial dynamics, I did not have that. And I ended up turning to the internet a lot. And that's when I started following 
certain online writers. I think that's probably around the time I maybe kind of found your work, first of all, something like that. Way back in the like, you had a blog? I'm trying I to remember did. the name, it was like Lady Pants. Lady Pants. Yeah. Lady Pants, so, the blog. Oh my God. Yeah. R.I.P. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I remember that being one of the few examples that I had of like a black woman doing something in a creative space that I felt like I could kind of see myself doing because I was going through my own like career hell working in advertising and not really wanting to do that. So I very much turned to the internet for like examples of where I could take my career and yours is one of them. But I'm kind of on a tangent there, but I'm curious as to when you were thinking about race and gentrification and all these different dynamics, did you have people to discuss them with? Because I know you then went on to do what we call a master's in this as well, or is that kind of when you really became interested in it? Yeah, totally. And like, I thank you for saying that. It's really a beautiful sentiment and I'm very humbled by that. And that's really why I write, period. Who was I talking about it with? I mean, I, I had a few friends at the time. My social circle was really small. My world was really small. I talked about it with like the guy that I was seeing who was a bit of like a Brooklyn philosopher. He was he was really funny. You know, he grew up in Brooklyn and he just had a lot to say about the changing dynamics and he really opened my eyes to that. So we would talk about it. But a lot of those times, those conversations weren't encouraged. In 2006, 2007, like when I was really opening up and like really coming into my racial consciousness, th those were not the types of conversations that people were having. I just remember really reading a lot. I read a lot about women who really were having those conversations during their time and like led the way. So, you know, I've said this before, but, you know, women like Asada Shakur and Elaine Brown and Audre Lorde, like those were the women who were huge influences on me. And I said, I want to go back and I want to study African-American studies. And I decided I was going to apply to some master's programs and just see what happened. I didn't have... I don't know. I didn't have the confidence or faith in myself that I would get into a program, but I did. And I, I wound up going to Columbia and that really opened me up. Like that was an incredible experience. And it was for the first time ever that I had black professors. That changes a lot of things just right there changes so many things, you know, but it also allowed me to explore different ideas that I had been thinking about, but didn't have the community or like-minded language. People. That Sometimes. part, mm. that part, yes, for sure. Definitely opened up my language to speaking about issues around gentrification or issues around environmental racism or, you know, what it means to see Beyonce in popular culture as Sasha Fierce and have this bifurcated identity. Like, I mean, we would get into it all about all sorts of different things. And that was really wonderful. And I, I learned a lot about incredible heroes like Malcolm X and Jordan and just people who really made a huge impression on me and my politics. And I had an incredible mentor, Dr. Manning Marable, who's passed, but he wrote one of the premier books on Malcolm X. And so I really, really got that incredible education about Malcolm's teachings and his politics and his life, you know, he was like, you should be a writer. And that's kind of like what set me up for this. I'm curious, what has it been like to watch these topics that, you know, a decade ago were definitely niche, become suddenly fully mainstream and talked about hugely, you know, in, in every kind of single news and media outlet. How have you found that process? Because you essentially were very much ahead of your time. Like I read somewhere that you wrote an undergrad thesis on the commodification of black female beauty, which I imagine at the time was kind of niche and, <laughs> you know, but now that is like a very like standard topic, if we're being honest, like that's the kind of thing that I can probably say that to a white woman and she kind of understands what I mean. But 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. So what has watching that evolution been like for you? It's really interesting that you say that because I'm not even sure how I feel about it, to be perfectly honest. Like, I was not encouraged to have those types of conversations in public. I think that I had to take the academic-iness out of my jargon, out of my vocabulary after a certain point because it was like, nobody understands what you're saying, girl. Like, <laughs> let's take it down. Okay. Do you and, mean you when know. you started writing, like, kind of for, like, the public and, like, journalism? Yes, that and just talking, having a normal conversation. People got it, like, got it. Pedagogy, like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm sorry, let me find another word, you know. And 
Yeah, talking about gender inequities, talking about intersectional feminism, those were not conversations that were had. And now I, I'd have to say, at the beginning, I was taken aback by, sometimes it can read like, it feels a little disingenuous. And I'm not going to lie, because it does feel like kind of reactive, and people are trying to get in where they fit in, like, this is kind of popular now, so I should start talking about this. But then at the same time, I'm just like, well, I think it's really great that people are having these conversations. And I learn from younger feminists and younger thinkers all the time. I mean, I got my degree in 2005. I got my master's in 2009. So there's a lot of academia and a lot of work that's happened since then that I have to catch up on myself. But I was shook a little bit that like we were starting to talk about those things. And then it was to use my word commodified. You know, feminism Mm. was definitely commodified. It was commercial in a lot of ways. I think we're coming out of that a little bit, but I do think it's amazing that there's space to call out horrible behavior of men and for there possibly to be done something done about it. I don't think that was the case before. And I think that if you're experiencing racism at work or you're experiencing discrimination at work or in some type of environment, you can say something. And, like, people are willing to listen. And I think that that's, like, the beautiful thing about it. But I do get a little, you know, <laughs> I, I'm a little you know, kind of shaky when it comes to the commercialization of it. That's all. Yeah, totally. No, I think, to be honest, I think I felt very similarly, especially last summer after George Floyd was killed. And there was obviously a huge explosion of conversations around Black Lives Matter. And a lot of conversations that people like you and me and my friends and my community and my black friends had been having well before. And I suddenly felt like I saw like a lot of money pour into that space. And like you say, a lot of like commercialization of it. And I suddenly felt like we were seeing this like allyship industrial complex kind of starting to take place. And it's like all of a sudden, like a white woman is being paid to moderate a panel about allyship. I was just like, what? Yeah. I, we can talk about this offline because <laughs> I don't want to put anyone on blast. Oh, oh my God. But there were some really wild things happening. Like, honestly, my WhatsApps ever since last July, like with some of my friends, we have been like, now, what is this? Like sending each other a screenshot, like, have you seen this? But, you know, wow. just kind of taking that to one side. So, yeah, yeah. I-, I think like you, I am both heartened by the mainstreaming of certain conversations. Like, I think it's great that all of these, like, old racist media editors, like, suddenly had to, like, be held accountable and suddenly had to resign or lose their jobs last summer because people were speaking out. But I'm also very wary and, like, keeping an eagle eye on the kind of purpose of these conversations and whether they ever move past conversation because I think that's another thing that happens in relation to conversations about diversity and inclusion is it just becomes like an endless cycle of panel conversations and I'm like where is the money (laughs) where is being paid yeah like where is my coin honey (laughs) exactly exactly no I feel you completely and I I was talking about this the other day on your favorite auntie and I said that I read business of fashion you know, I have like a subscription to business of fashion. So I went on the website and I was scrolling through the website and there was this article that said, you know, white supremacy is interwoven into the like seams of luxury fashion. And I was like, okay, it was like an op-ed. And then I scroll down a little further and then there's a job announcement of a white woman who's, the C- who's now the SVP of some major luxury retailer. And I said to myself, see, this is what I'm talking about. We can no longer do the panels and, you know, really just we're using our energy so much and there's nothing being done about it because then they will continue to do the same thing that they've always done. And I know that's a bit nihilistic, but I'm like, I no, I'm totally with you with that. And it's funny because that word has been used to describe stuff I've written and said, (laughs) Um, like, you know, that and the word cynical. And I'm like. Or am I just realistic and looking at the world and calling it as I see it? You're calling it as you see it. And like, this is something my friend Patia told me the other day. She was like, with girls like us, we talk too much. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, well, you know, like we're supposed to say racism is bad, but we're not supposed to explain why. And when she said that to me, I was like, okay, you know what? I need to go sit down for a second because she's right. Like we're supposed to be like, 
racism is bad. As black women, we're supposed to be like, that's bad, but we're not supposed to tell you historically, systematically, how it is bad and what is done all the time and what that looks like and who benefits from it. And like, we're not supposed to call out people, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, this is the thing that I, oh my God, I'm, I'm really going to feel myself going on a rant, but this is the <laughs> thing where I feel like often we have to talk about racism in a really broad and vague way. So, and I'm literally just almost directly quoting from something I've actually written, but like, you kind of have to talk about it in terms of like structural and implicit bias. And I'm like, no, let's actually talk about the fact that there are actual individuals who are responsible for it because it becomes this like vague and tangible thing yeah. that's like racism yeah. is just in the air. I'm like, no, yeah. these are decisions made by humans, made by individual people. The system does not create itself. It's created by people. And I find that just a really, like, it's like a cop out. I think the way some people, and I think often white people talk about it that way. And so I think for me, something that I've really lent into, especially since last June, which, you know, had as much of an effect here in the UK, I think, Mm -hmm. as it did in the US, is just really speaking as bluntly as I possibly can and making people feel uncomfortable and just not, not even trying to make them feel uncomfortable, but not mincing my words in a way that like, as a black woman, you have a lifetime of experience in doing. And it actually takes some like coaching to remind yourself, to get yourself to speak honestly. Especially in professional settings. It takes a lot for me to show up fully as myself. And at 37, like in my current job, I just, I really wanna be able to do that more than ever before because in my previous jobs, I just haven't been able to. I, I, I took a lot on the chin and I suffered a lot and I suffer quietly. You know, something makes me uncomfortable, I have to say it now. I really, really do. And if I think something's wrong or I think that something's going on, I got to call it out. But as Black women, we have to unlearn this idea of keeping everyone comfortable and, and not rocking the boat. Because everything we do is under surveillance, you know, from the way we wear our hair to the way that we cross our legs to the expression on our face. And that's exhausting. <laughs> it's so, so exhausting. It's interesting that you've kind of brought up previous experiences and suffering, suffering in silence, which, oh my God, I relate to that. But you've spoken pretty openly, actually, now about some of your less positive experiences at previous employers. And by that, I mean specifically Vogue and especially last summer, post George Floyd. And I have to say, I really admire this because I think as like a, well, for me anyway, as like a self-employed media worker, you are always aware, like, I think I like subtweeted Condé Nast and then it ended up in an article in the New York Times. And I was like, uh, I was like, to be honest, I was like, this needs to be said. So I'm, I'm happy it's there. And the journalist did ask my permission or did let me know it was happening, that it was going to go up. So I was like, it's fine. But there was a part of me that was like, you know, most people would probably not do this but I'm also like I just cannot keep my mouth shut anymore but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about if you're happy to about some of your experiences at Vogue because I'm sure that it was maybe a mixed bag and as a journalist it it probably gave you a lot but yeah you've talked a little bit about your experience and I was wondering if you could share that with people who don't necessarily know about that or who don't necessarily follow your work. I feel like I have a weird relationship about being so vocal about it Do you go back and forth about feeling comfortable about that? I do, just because the fear of retaliation for Black women is so real. And so even today, as a a very confident 37-year-old Black woman who feels she's like in a really great place in her career, I definitely have a fear of retaliation. And like New York Times actually reached out to me. I don't know if this is the same article, but there was an article about like, you know, Vogue and racism. And I was like, I don't want to be on record talking about this. And he was like, well, you don't have to be on record. And I was like, I, I don't know, like, because I don't know if you have the best of intentions, because when it comes to my narrative, it's like, I really have to have full ownership of it and how it's discussed and how it comes out. And because it really is such a sensitive topic, I will say that my time there was really life changing. I was such a young baby. I look at pictures of myself and then I'm like, oh my God. You know, even though it was my early 30s, I, I just still look at her and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want to hug you. But I had worked so hard to get there. The book was like my everything. And I got there and it really was my dream job for a really long time. I, I'd say the first year was like amazing. It was a lot of hard work. It's a lot of 
dedication, it's long hours, it's everything you think it would be. I will say that it was not as like Devil Wears Prada-y as, <laughs> as people would have thought, you know, like where people are like throwing coats at me. No, it, it wasn't like that. It was much more a, a creative time. And it was also a time in fashion where the idea of diversity, it was like just starting. And my editor, they allowed me to go and run with that. So I was able to take that opportunity and use it as a platform to really talk to and highlight Black creatives, creatives of color who were previously ignored by the magazine or underrepresented by the magazine. And that I fucking am so proud of. Like, I really look back at that and I'm like, you started that wave. Because before then, that wasn't happening. It was very, very white, Upper East Side, you know, downtown white girl, Chinatown, that kind of <laughs> French girl. Like, it wasn't, it, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, can we do a story on Yara Shahidi in 2015? People were like, who? And I was like, Yara Shahidi, like, just trust me. And I wrote the first piece that Tracy Ellis Ross ever had in Vogue in 2015. Yes. Like there's a lot of moments where it's like, she's so iconic, but the girls were not checking for her in 2015. I'm telling you. And you know, so I was just like, y'all don't know, like this girl is it. She's about to be it. They were like, I guess. And it was like, no. And, but there were a lot of people that I had to convince Cardi B. I was like, guys, Cardi B is about to blow up. And they were like, who, huh? I don't, what are you talking about? And then she did. And I just remember she, like, a few months later was, like, sitting next to Anna Wintour at, at the Alexander Wang fashion show. And it was, like, months like, after. Mm-hmm. Oh, Where is my finger on the pulse? Okay, it's on the pulse, honey. Because I knew that, and as we know as Black people, we know that Black people are the biggest architectures of culture. We, we create incredible music. We create incredible art, literature, TikTok dances, anything like we do it like that's just it just flows out of us naturally. So if we're a a fashion and culture magazine, then why are we not, you know, highlighting some of the biggest creators out there? It just didn't make any sense. I really felt like that opportunity and that moment was both a blessing and a curse. I mean, it sounds like you took it and ran with it and made a hell of a lot out of it and you know actually I, I, <laughs> you know but actually I almost I actually even just want to move on and not dwell on the negative because I think actually in asking you about certain things it's like black women are often asked or held answerable for things that just like are not their fault or nothing to do with them so I, I want to like focus back on the work because you mentioned Cardi B and you have written some brilliant covers and one of them was for Cardi B last year and you also very recently Actually, I just read it this morning. Uh, it was pretty heavy. Profiled FKA Twigs. Two huge artists. And also the profiles. This isn't like a sort of like 10, 15 minute press junket where you're having to like spin it out into 3,000 words. Like these went deep. Like I could tell that like, you had full, proper access to these women. And I could also tell that you had gained their trust which I think is really important and it really comes out in the writing of the article. And so I'm curious, like journalist to journalist, how do you prep for a big profile like that? Well, thank you for reading them. And I really cherish those stories. They were emotional, obviously, and they were massive undertakings, but I'm very proud that they made impact. In something like that, I try to read every single thing about that person. If I have the time, you know, sometimes you might not, but I try to just be like, I'm going to read every single thing, every article, every review of their work, look at some YouTube interviews, definitely look at interviews of them from before and kind of get their vibe. Obviously, you know, when you you get time with a talent, you know, they could be in a bad mood, they could be in a good mood, you know, it, it, it just depends on the day, but you can kind of start picking up on things. You can start picking up on like patterns of things that they say and be like, okay, I don't want to ask them about that because they've been talking about that for a long time and, and, you know, and so on and so forth. And then that's really kind of how I get acquainted with them. And they have movies. I watch all their movies. I listen to their albums. Like I was listening to FKA Twig's uh, work for like a week, just like, I mean, I'm obviously a huge, huge fan and I, and since 2013, but I went back and I listened to Magdalene again and I was just immersed in her world. So I try to really get like immersed in them, understand everything that I 
about them as much as I can, look at their Instagram, look at their social media, that kind of stuff. I find out what they love to talk about because that's what's going to loosen them up first. And for Twigs, it was talking about music. She wants to talk about music. She's a musician. She's a creative. She's an artist. She wants to talk about community. And then with Cardi, it was to talk about her kids, talk about her husband. You know, that's what she, you know, and, and talk about COVID. Because at the time, she was still up in the house. I interviewed her Very in vocal. Yes. That's what yes. I, I loved about that interview, actually, is how <laughs> vocal and political she was and is. And I think, I don't know, I've just always really liked that aspect of her public persona because I think it's something that she could very easily stay away from, especially as I think Absolutely. she maybe doesn't get enough like credit for it. But like, she's smart. She's on the money. Like she's <laughs> what she says is money. so spot on. So I really enjoyed that aspect of that. So once you have like, you know, all of your material and you've interviewed them, you've spoken to them, how do you then go about crafting this profile and deciding what is important, what to focus on? Obviously, I think something like Twigs, there was obviously a very big newsworthy moment with, mm-hmm. you know, that whole situation and domestic abuse. But like more generally, how do you decide like this is what the hook of the story is going to be? Right. So like with Twigs, it was like there's a narrative here. There's like a A, B, C. And like I don't necessarily have to craft that, but I do need to craft how we tell it and like where we're going to start. So for me, you know, I think it's always about that lead and that intro. So that really kind of, that will make me go insane sometimes as I'm like, where are we going to start? Where Because if I don't have the lead, I can't write the rest of the piece. A lot of people are like, oh, come back to the intro. I'm like, nah, nah, nah I'm not like that. I'm much more like, you got to figure actually. out. Right? Like I can't. I work read. pretty chronologically with when I'm <laughs> writing stuff. So I'm like, I, I need, <laughs> I can't, I, I think similarly, like I finished a book recently and people were like, did you do it in different orders? The chapters, That's I was amazing. like, no, I wrote it. I wrote like chapter one through to 10. Like I was like, I can't skip around like that. And I admire people who are like, okay, I'll leave the intro to the end. But that for me sets up the whole piece. And once you've nailed yes. it, you also have the confidence that carries you through the Absolutely. rest of the piece. And you're like, I've got a great setup. But yeah, it's good to Absolutely. know that's your process as well. Once I find the lead, if it's a narrative, if I've had something funny happens or something interesting happens or there's a really crazy quote, that's where we'll start right from there. I did an outline with twigs. I don't normally do that, but it was so so much information that I had to figure out what we were going to keep and what we were going to take out. I don't know. I just write and write and write and write. I'm I'm bad at that. <laughs> I, I I feel like my editors are like, girl, like I said three thousand words and you're giving me five, and I'm like, I'm sorry. Let's talk but about I think it. It's like, important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, like oh. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm definitely the same. I'm like, I think the piece deserves mm-hmm. <laughs> the topic yes, deserves yes, yes, yes this yes, extra yes. however many, which I think is also very true. I think with word counts often as writers like you have them and sometimes it'll be very fixed because this is the page space we have but other times you're like you know you can make space for this extra thousand two thousand words because it's all good like it's in the back there is no there is no filler here so yeah exactly a quick word from our episode sponsor aurelia skincare i already mentioned that their cbd super serum has powerful anti-inflammatory benefits helps reduce the appearance of wrinkles and keeps your skin super hydrated. But did you know that it's also odorless, which means it doesn't have the usual scent you sometimes find in CBD products, which is great if you're sensitive to strong smells or just don't love the smell of CBD in general. The reviews for this product are also all raves, to be honest. An example of one that caught my eye on their website is from someone who says that their acne breakouts have basically disappeared and their skin has cleared up immensely since they started using it. Sounds good to me. Do be sure to check out at www.aureliaskincare.com and use the code IDC20 at checkout for 20% off all their products. I want to talk a bit more about your kind of career as a whole, because I think you're probably the definition of, I don't like the phrase multi-hyphen, I'd say you have a portfolio career, if maybe that's something you'd agree with, but essentially you do a lot of things because you're obviously a journalist and writer, you are a brand consultant, you're a host, you know, you have your show, your favorite auntie, which we will get to. And then you have like a whole full-time job heading up editorial at Langer Brand. And you now have a lot on your plate, 
But I actually want to go back to the beginning of your freelancing career, like post Vogue, so after you'd left Vogue. I want to understand how you adapted to freelancing, what that transition was like. Like, did you have a career strategy or a goal at that point? Like, how did you even find work? Just just talk me through going freelance. Sure. I mean, I think freelance life was, it was really hard. It was an uphill battle the whole way. I will say this, post-Vogue, I had PTSD. So I had a lot of weird anxiety around writing, which is really sad, you know, because it's like, this is what I do. This is what I love to do. But it literally triggered the shit out of me to have to sit down and write an article and really focus because I was consumed with a lot of insecurities and a lot of confidence issues. And I had to really build that back up. So that was the underlying issue a lot of times. It wasn't for a lack of ambition, but it was just that like, I didn't know how to get started again. I didn't know how to feel confident again about my writing. I started just consulting for brands. I consulted for Fashion Fair, which is like a a black beauty brand, like one of the first black beauty brands ever. Like our moms used to wear it. (laughs) I know what Fashion (laughs) Fair is. You're like, girl, now listen now. I know what Fashion Fair is, okay? Yeah, exactly. I I definitely used to wear it, like stealing it from like my mom's, when I was like 15 and like stealing my mom's makeup and like getting into that. I definitely remember wearing some of that. But anyway, carry on. I worked for Barney's, RIP. You know, I developed out a editorial franchise for them where I interviewed women about their career and what they wore. And it was all very shoppable. And, you know, it lived on their blog site. And that was a really big chunk of time and effort. And I started a talk series at Dumbo House and I was taking up articles here and there, but I really didn't, I still just like wasn't confident in my writing. And I don't think it was until, I don't know, I feel like my friend gave me a piece to write for Glamour. It was 2018. She gave me a piece to write for Glamour. And it was about the multiple covers of Black women for September issues. Like it was like I want to talk 14. about that. Right. <laughs> but please what? carry on. Before I jump in and interrupt you, please carry Sure, on. sure. Yeah. The reactions to the article made me feel like, okay, you've got this. Like you really you have this, but you have to build it back up because your voice is like I don't know, it was just a little weak at the time. It really was. And I started getting more opportunities. I wrote a piece about white women's tears and how they're weaponized. And they have been so historically. And this is all pre-Amy Cooper. I wrote that for The Wings, No Man's Land. And that was another big piece. Oh, was that the Robin DiAngelo Mm -hmm. interview? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember Mm -hmm. reading that at the time. That was brilliant. Thank you. And I really loved actually talking to her. And it's one of like the first real conversations I've had with a white woman who wasn't on the defensive about race. And I was like, I was really like, thank you. But that piece and like and certain things that came after it, like I interviewed Lupita Nyong'o for Porter Magazine after that. And it was like, okay, like we're, we're getting back into it. Like, it's kind of like, imagine your shoulders are up really, really high because you're just like so anxious. And slowly they were coming down. You know, like slowly I was able to like sit at a computer and not fret. I totally get that. I had a job working. I mean, I've actually always been pretty open about it. Like I had like a nightmare working at Vice. And after I left, I just had completely lost confidence. Like I remember because I was writing about it recently, I went back and read through. So I used to chat to my best friend, like <laughs> all the live long day on Facebook Messenger <laughs> when I was at work. <laughs> so it's like, and actually a really clear document of how I was feeling and what was happening to me at that time. And it is very depressing. And, you know, there are things in there, like me telling my best friend, oh, I actually think I might be stupid. Like, I've always thought I'm smart, but actually maybe I'm not. And like, I used to think I was a good writer, but actually I'm starting to realise I'm not a good writer. And like, I have since gone on, I write for a living and that is not an easy career to make. But these jobs and these environments they can just really knock your confidence. And it's, yeah, it took me a long time to recover from that. And similarly, I I didn't leave that job and go straight into writing. Like I was freelancing in ad agencies and stuff and like essentially like licking my wounds. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I I really relate to that. But the reason I wanted to talk to you about the September covers, and I don't think I've actually read your glamour piece, but it's because I wanted to talk about colorism, which is something that I've seen you address on your Instagram stories. I think recently we kind of had a back and forth about I don't even know her name. Like Danny Lee. She's yeah, I'm like, I'm like, you Americans can take her. 
I'm like, I don't know who this girl is. I like saw it on Twitter and then I saw you talking about it and I was just like, mess. Like, please mess. just like, but I obviously saw you kind of addressing the colorism inherent in, you know, the whole mess that she'd gotten herself into. Mm. But you also talked about it before. Those September covers, I had a real, not issue with them at the time, but I had an issue with the narrative around them. You know, for people listening who aren't aware, September 2018 was kind of heralded as this like landmark moment for diversity within the fashion industry and particularly within fashion media because all of the major magazines, British Vogue, American Vogue, Elle, all of them had black women on the covers. And everyone was like, this is such an amazing moment. And, you know, it wasn't coordinated. I guess they all just kind of caught the same wave, the same vibe, the same moment. However, none of those women were dark-skinned black women. It was Zendaya, Rihanna, Beyonce, Slickwoods, like all of these women, light-skinned. And I remember feeling Mm. pressured to celebrate this moment as a landmark for black women, which it is, but it was also a landmark for mixed race or light-skinned black women, but there were no women on those covers who looked like me. And I wanted to get your take on that because I, this is not any kind of, I'm not trying to be divisive, but I think oftentimes within all aspects of culture, not just fashion, oftentimes light-skinned black women or mixed race or black women, their experiences are treated as synonymous with those of someone who looks like me, who is a dark-skinned black woman. And they're not. Mm. Maternity mortality rates are different. Racial pay gaps are different. Educational attainment rates are different. And I wanted to get your take on that because it's something that I find difficult to voice without feeling like I am A, denying other black women's experiences of blackness mm-hmm. and be just almost being contrary for the sake of it. But I know that you're someone who thinks about these things a lot. So I just wanted to get your take. No. And I think that what you're saying is all true. It's something that I've observed in media up close and historically what light skinned women in entertainment have been at the front of a lot of groundbreaking moments, right? Like we, I talked about this before where it's like Lena Horne, Dorothy Dandridge, like, you know, women like that have historically been ushered in to entertainment and been given, quote unquote, a seat at the table, though we know that that's not necessarily the case because of their palatability, because of their light skin and because of their features in short terms, making white audiences feel comfortable. And we understand that. So this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon, but I definitely understand how it feels like it is because we had that huge wave, right? Like unprecedented wave of all these black women on the covers of all these magazines and they all looked a certain way. And Zendaya and Amanda Stenberg, I feel like are the only two actresses, light skin mixed, who have openly spoken about that. And then like, and they're young, very powerful, and they know that something's off, you know, and they're aware of their privilege and they've talked about that. But I don't think enough women have. And I don't really understand why other light-skinned women don't speak about that because I would never say that I'm the lightest woman in the room, but I definitely know my impact when I enter a room and I know when I open my mouth, the impact that I make, and it could be perceived as palatability. And then when you get to know me, it's, <laughs> they're like, oh shit, I, I thought she was something about <laughs> So I was like, no, no, I'm going to probably- and switch. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, I'm probably going to piss you off in about two minutes, but it's okay. It's okay. But I think you have to have some self-awareness to realize that like other women who are dark skinned, they have a different experience than you and they may feel a type of way. And it doesn't mean that your experiences aren't valid as a light-skinned woman, but you do have to understand what goes into it. And I think there's just a lack of self-awareness. Danny Lee is someone who just is not self-aware, who is A, not educated, and B, refusing to take accountability for the way that what she said can impact Black women who do not look like her. Because she's kind of like, well, it's not on me. And it's like, well, it is on you. I mean, it is. And if we're all coming along, if we're all like looking to be included, we all need to be included. Because if you turn on the television and while you may love Zendaya, she may not represent who you are. And I don't think it's a problem. I think it's wonderful that she's gotten as much praise as she has, Zendaya has. 
I think I just struggle with being told, and I say this having spoken to other dark-skinned black women, I think I struggle, and often, you know, actually I'm being told this often by white people, but being told that someone like Zendaya's experiences are representative of mine. And it, I mean, especially I, something I find strange, also kind of being British, and like obviously we consume huge amounts of American culture, but I love Beyonce, Beehive, don't come for me. But like, I am supposed to feel, I'm like already like caveating that. Oh my God, like seriously, they'll put a hit on me. But I am supposed to feel represented by a very, like not even taking class into it because she's now in a very different class from me, but a light-skinned American woman, black, light-skinned black American woman. And I'm like, my life experiences are so different from someone like Beyonce's, like, even if she wasn't famous. I think what I'm kind of really struggling, and it's something that, you know, maybe I'll probably explore, like, write about, and I'm trying to find a sensitive way to talk about it, but I'm like, these people, we have some things in common, and the fact that we are all subject to racism, and but there are nuances in our experiences that are being conflated that make me uncomfortable. But anyway, I just kind of wanted to talk about that. I think that that's true. I I just want to say two things about that. I think you are absolutely right because there is gatekeeping that's going on. There's someone who's making that decision in a casting room that like that one woman represents black women. And it's like, no, that's not the case. No diss to that black woman, but that is not the case, you know? And I think we can kind of live in a world where those two things exist, where it's like, go run, succeed. I want to see you win. But at the same time, your narrative and your experience, it's not reflective of mine. And that really comes down to gatekeeping. And, you know, ultimately, these certain people have decided, like you're saying, someone's telling you that this is what the Black woman is supposed to look like, you know, today, the modern Black woman. And you're like, that's not really who I am. So I think I, I definitely, definitely hear you on that. And I think that has got to change. And I see it in media a lot, <laughs> just a lot, you know, like, oh, she's so beautiful. And I'm like, right, I know why you think she's beautiful, but okay. And the second thing I wanted to say was like, as light-skinned women, like our job really honestly is to constantly combat colorism and to unlearn it because it can be very unconscious, but it's like, that is actually a part of it. So for Danny Lee to be so offended or to be all up in arms about what she She said. She seemed to really not know why what she said was wrong at like a very kind of deep spiritual level. Like she seemed to not understand it. She was like, you know, it's true. Like it was almost to the point, like watching her apology. I'm like, I don't even know if I can be mad at this girl because like she does not understand why what she's saying why what she said or her stupid song lyrics why they were offensive she's like well i'm light-skinned and i can say it's like she just completely missed like the whole historical context and yeah yeah there's that as well (laughs) we don't we didn't ask ask for this we didn't ask for the anthem as light-skinned women we actually like i'm saying we need to constantly be educating ourselves about colorism and fighting against it and creating space and actually Mm. giving up opportunities where we have to, right? And allow other women to be represented and to be centered. Like that's actually what that takes. I feel you. I definitely feel you about how someone's deciding this for me. And it's like, that's not it. Cause I feel that way in other ways. It's like, for me, I'm not British, but like for me, Michaela Cole, like her narrative and her art she creates, that speaks to me in a lot of ways than other American artists do. And and you know what I'm saying? And it's like, I don't want anyone to, try to push certain things onto me that doesn't apply. Yeah, so. definitely. Change the subject again. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about, I'm just like, I'm just like going from topic to topic. There's so much I, I want to care. ask you. I'm, I, like, yeah, I'm like, I just want to get it all that. out. <laughs> but I want to talk to you. Something I've written down on my little piece of paper is influencing. Because while I would not describe you as an influencer first and foremost, you are an influencer. And I don't know how you feel about that title, about that label but you know as I was saying before we started recording I texted a friend before telling her I was interviewing you and she was like ask her how I get her life it was like not just how Marjon dresses but she was like and I quote she was like her her whole ass career like this was literally the question (laughs) that was asked of me and I was like bitch like I'm a professional (laughs) I'm a journalist I'm not asking her that 
But that is to say, you definitely have an aspirational lifestyle on Instagram, you know, lifestyle as presented on Instagram. As presented, and I'm yeah, so, like, you know, I was like, <laughs> let's, let's be specific with our, with our language here. Do you worry about being taken seriously as a mm. thinker or journalist mm. while also being very into fashion and clothes and using your Instagram to document that? And the reason I ask that is because I do massively. Yeah. So I wanted I'm to curious get how you mitigated too, because it's. I feel like you know, it is hard. <laughs> yeah, it is hard. I think um, I just don't share as much as I mm, want to. Essentially, so I'm careful to that? not share. So I mean, I do share stuff about kind of lifestyle things and fashion and clothes on Instagram, but I want my writing to be taken seriously. I want first and foremost to be known for my writing. I feel like I've attained a level of credibility that is very easy to lose if you are. I don't think influencers are perceived as having credibility. And also that's like not how I make my money. So I'm also like, <laughs> well, if you're going to call me an Instagram influencer, I expect to be seeing some of those checks. Like, So yeah. I, I find that I'm worried about being seen to be into like fashion or brands that that will detract and distract from my work. And I say that because I've seen it happen to other people. And I think once it happens, it's it's kind of hard to claw back. So the, the way I get around it is, you know, I share some stuff about fashion and clothes because it's such a big love of mine. Like, it's really something that I think about and discuss a lot and indulge in a lot. But I just kind of limit it. And actually, I'm more likely to tweet out a picture of a pair of shoes or something like that than I am to put on Instagram because I think... Because I'm like, I want to discuss these shoes, but I know that if I put them on Instagram, it changes the dynamic of it could. that discussion. It, I, I mean, but I might I be wrong. You sound like you you don't feel the same. Well, I feel like an internal battle. Like you, I definitely hear what you're, what you're saying, and I definitely know where you're coming from. Someone did call me an influencer once, and it was on Twitter, and a friend piped in, and they were like, "She's a journalist with influence." That's what I meant to say. By the way, when I called you, I was like, "You're not an influencer first and foremost, but you have influence." Therefore. You're like an influence of the little eye, not a capital. <laughs> I like that with a little eye. And I feel comfortable in that space because I feel like other writers before me were, they had their lives and they had their interests. They loved having a good time and they loved indulging themselves. I mean, whenever I see that picture of like Maya Angelou dancing, I think she's dancing with like a Mary Baraka. And they're just having a wonderful time. I was like, yeah, like, fucks with that. Like, that's who I am. And, you know, there is a part of me that's like, these topics are so important. I want to talk about race. I want to talk about gender inequities, media, pop culture, all these things. I really, really want to get into it. But I'm also someone who, at the end of the day, does watch Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. And that exists within one person. I am someone who loves J.W. Anderson. And I really want to talk about it for a second. And I think that's okay. I definitely see a lot of other writers who I respect, their work, and they're much quieter and they're much more humble about their writing. And it kind of bugs me a little bit when I see something like, I wrote a thing and it's like a really big thing. It's like, a, and it's, it's like a, big, a book. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I wrote a thing. I, I like, uh, you know, and it's, I feel like women, especially female writers have to dumb it down or be a little, you know, sheepish about it, you know? And I am like, I don't really like that. But and you're I not necessarily allowed to say, oh, hey, I got my dream commission at this <laughs> publication that I've been wanting to write for for almost my entire career. And here it is. And like, just be like, and I'm really proud of that. Like, you're not really allowed to say that. It has to be like, baby's first Vogue article. Like, you know, like, and just like really kind of, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like there are these yeah. like accepted like phrases and I'm just so sick of it. I'm Sorry, sick of that's... it too. No, I am sick of that. I'm sick of that. I'm I'm like, say what you want to say. Be like, I interviewed this person and it was wonderful and this was the experience or this was hard or whatever because I feel like men can be as loud and proud about whatever they've done and I just don't understand why it's a different rule for us. And I mean, I definitely do battle with like how much I give of myself because I am doing something that maybe a lot of other journalists aren't doing, but that's because I'm actually inspired by women who go outside of the bounds of their job title and they play with it a bit more. Like I love Tamron Hall. 
I love Soledad O'Brien. Like those are like some of my favorite journalists and they really play in different yards, you know? And Tamron Hall is out here stunting in looks, you know? <laughs> and she is a journalist and she's an incredible interviewer and it doesn't distract from what she's saying. And so I'm like, okay, I want to lean into that more. If I'm kind of obsessed with a look, I'm going to post the look. If I'm obsessed with a book, I'm going to post the book and just kind of play with it a bit more because you've worked hard and you know that your writing will speak for itself. And that should be the case. And as much as I'm telling you this, I'm telling this to myself and reminding myself that, you know, so if you do post the shoes, it's okay because we all know you wrote like two books. (laughs) you know like you wrote two whole ass books so it's not like you're incapable of that i think chimamanda ngozi adiche is another writer yes yes, you know girl what's on that she's a dior muse i'm always like chimamanda do because (laughs) her entire instagram is just looks it's all looks it's all looks and incredible looks like incredible looks she loves fashion she's like You know, and she was definitely someone who was there fostering the careers of Nigerian designers. And she was also the whole ass muse for Dior. And she was also writing Americana, which still makes me cry. I feel like we should be able to have multitudes is my answer. And so I would continue to say that I am a journalist with influence. And I actually appreciate that more than sheepishly saying I wrote a thing. You know, <laughs> if I ever see you do that, I'd be like, Majan, come on Girl, now. No, no, if I, see I won't you, see you doing that. Yeah, if no, no, no. I see you, it's post the shoes. <laughs> I'm going to post them right now. I actually have them, <laughs> but I've been waiting to post. But like, there are no opportunities in this goddamn lockdown. Anyway, that's definitely a whole nother tangent. <laughs> do you know what? This is actually a really nice segue because I definitely felt like you were slipping into your favorite auntie mode there just now <laughs> kind of speaking truth giving me advice I was like yes I am gonna post the shoes but your favorite auntie is one of my favorite things that has come out of yeah I'm just completely gushing by the way I love your work that has come out of this like I don't want to call it quarantine content because that would be misleading but it is something that came about during the past year and I found a real lifeline I guess to watch during the various quarantines and lockdowns that we've been going through. Like it was definitely like a real, and it still is like a real weekly highlight. And I'd literally be like, cause I think you changed the time and there was a point in time where I could watch it live and I'd literally get my like oh, yeah. wine and like, <laughs> I'd be like, let me just sit in and like see what's going on. <laughs> I just love it. But for anyone listening who actually isn't familiar with your favorite auntie, please could you explain the concept and where it came from and what it's all about? Well, thank you for saying that. It's so funny. I don't think if it hadn't had been for quarantine, would I have done it? You know, so I I have to give quarantine credit for something. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) damn, you know. Basically, what happened was the whole Amy Cooper situation happened in the park, in Central Park. That was like late May. Then a few days later, George Floyd was killed. And I just remember my article around white women's tears started being recirculated. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to put it up on my website so people can really get a chance to read it. Because it it wasn't available on the Wings website. It was in print, wasn't it? It was in their magazine. It was in print, yeah. So it wasn't digital. So I put that out. And then I had a lot of people asking me a bunch of different questions. And I was like... You know, maybe there's a form where I can just like go on alive and just start answering people's questions. And that's what I did. And I was like, I had been wanting to start a podcast. And so hats off to you for doing that. I was like maybe too intimidated by it. And I was like, let's see what this is. It's just, you know, whatever. It'll be like a cute advice show that I do. And then I did it and I was like, that's so much fun. Weird, but fun. And I had a dear friend of mine who used to work with me at Vogue. He called me up and he was like, Marjan, I have some ideas. Okay. How we can really like make this a thing. And I was like, okay. And, you know, and I was open to it. And like, he really helped me kind of flesh it out. So your favorite auntie is an advice show. You know, my tagline is that I'm not as authoritarian as your mother. I'm not as infantilizing as your big sis. I'm your virtual confidant. You know, I'm here to provide advice, humor, enlightenment, just a good time. And 
what I do is I field questions from my community around a particular topic, and then I answer the questions on air. I've been having guests this season. That's been really fun because I miss my people. And so it's really nice to just like sit, drink wine for like two hours and just talk shit and not even talk shit, but like really get into things and have a great conversation and feel connected to somebody, something. And I just feel like the people who've come into the lives are all really warm, positive. They're funny. They want to connect. It's a fun space being in the comment section, like (laughs) after half half of the fun is like seeing the comments rolling in. I'm like, people really just, I feel like everyone is like me just sitting there with a glass of something in hand, like whilst they're, (laughs) they're watching, like it's a lot of fun. And I think that kind of, I know that people have been using IGTV, but like, I've never really, I'm like a bit of a granny in that sense. And so this was like the first IGTV show that I really tuned in and I was like, oh, this is really using that, I guess you'd call it technology format, whatever, using it really well, because it's like almost like a live podcast in a way. Like sometimes I would listen to the show after the fad, like if I couldn't watch it live and it's like, I would just have it on in the background whilst I'm like, you know, cleaning or whatever. It's like, I didn't necessarily need to always be watching, watching it. It It's like, I can still get the audio from it, but then that way, you know, you kind of miss the comments, but What I want to say actually is, you know, aside from being a really fresh concept, the thing that I really like about it is the fact that you actually give genuinely really great advice and it's like realistic and it's (laughs) honest. It's very tough love, (laughs) but I felt like it really, I don't know, like I turned 30 last year and oh my god I have felt <laughs> look at you have, you've yeah, done so I've, much thank you thank you've you. done so uh, much I hope you give yourself credit yeah I, I, I do I, I treat myself a lot <laughs> I'm like, okay let me Good. just buy this for myself <laughs> but no I'm like well done you okay let me just buy this no 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 but like thank you I, I really appreciate that but I think turning 30 and like maybe the year year and a half leading up to it and even now since First of all, I was really looking forward to turning 30, which I think is probably, it's supposed to be like a rarity for women. Like I had so many people being like, how are you feeling about it? And I was like, great. Like, I'm so excited. I was like, mentally, I have been 30 for a while. So I'm excited for my actual age to catch up with where I feel like in my head. Like I really just wanted to have that. And so that, I don't know, just something about it really exciting. But I feel like the past, not just because of the pandemic, but in terms of like, my self-perception, my take on relationships, on friendships, even on work has changed so much in the past year or two. And I felt like the advice you were giving really kind of spoke to where I am now or spoke to people who think deeply about how they want to conduct their lives, if that makes sense. I mean, I've been telling all my friends to watch it. I'm like, guys, come on, get on it. But no, 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 I'm not trying to make you cry. But I I really (laughs) want to understand, maybe you're not even going to be able to answer this, but like where you got that wisdom from, where you get these insights from, because they really do just feel like top tier, like not like the kind of cliche stuff you read in like, you know, your usual agony aunt column. So if you can answer that question, (laughs) or if you can try, I'd love to know where you get all of that wisdom from. I say thank you to that because that really, it does make me very emotional because I'm like, wow, that's like, that's why I do it. It is as much catharsis for myself as it is hopefully for others. I think it's an act of service. For me, it's it's a form of my political intervention because I'm not someone necessarily who is going to protest all the time. I don't know. I, I, there, there's a lot of different ways to show up, I guess is the best yes, way of putting definitely. it. Yes, definitely. And, and I'm not necessarily like a natural organizer or something like mm-hmm. that. I have friends who are, and I'm, I'm in awe of what they do. But I think there are other ways that I can like connect with people and get to people and spread a message. And I think that that, along with my writing, I have found to be really worthwhile and purposeful. And so I think that that's like a part of it. I've lived. I'm still living. I like to keep 10 toes down. I think a lot of people have assumptions about me because I worked at Vogue or I work in fashion and these types of things. And I think what's really important for me is that like they know that at the end of the day, I'm my mother's daughter and I really am someone who I just don't like airs. I don't like to put on airs. I don't like to pretend. I don't like bullies. 
So there's a lot of things where it's like, I like to keep it authentic. I like to keep it real. That's outside of the show. That's just in my day-to-day life. So, you know, when people come to me with a problem, which just happened a lot, I'm like, tell me what's going on. And I think that that has a lot to do with me being a journalist. Obviously, I like to ask follow-up questions, which a lot of people don't know the power of, you know, (laughs) I'm like, if you ask a follow-up question, you don't know what you're going to get, you know, because a lot of people are in their own worlds. They're like, what? And so I think journalism helps me connect with people and, and ask them a lot of questions. And so I think I just try to apply those principles of just being real, being authentic, being like anti-bully. Like I hate, I, I really, as an Aries, I'm just like, we're here to defend the little man. Like I really am like here to give pushback to anyone try to gang up on somebody or anything like that, you know? So, and I'm also here to amp somebody up. That's another Aries trait. You know, we're like, if I see my friend down, I'm like, bitch, do you know who you are? Don't forget who you are. Like, I really am that girl. And so, and the thing about it is sometimes I'm really hard on myself and my friends have to do that for me. You know, they're like, Marjan, you do a lot. You don't give yourself any credit. So it's like, as I'm giving advice, I'm listening to it myself and like taking it all in. I also think I have really wise women in my life. My mother is a really wise woman. My aunties are, I mean, they're the ones. They're the ones that were the blueprint for me to be the auntie that I am to my actual nieces and nephew. They were cool. They were interesting. They were independent. They live life on their own terms to this day. They crack me up. They say whatever's on their mind, you know, and I'm just like, wow, like, you know, you've given me such a great model and it's really informed the way that I, I look at the world and I'm able to distill that through advice and like hopefully help somebody. Ooh, so, yeah. I mean, you've definitely helped me a huge amount. And I think it's really beautiful, actually, that you kind of attribute that influence back to your actual aunties whilst you're playing the role of like internet auntie for for so many of us but yeah I think we are gonna have to leave things there I could talk to you forever I know I know I really could wrap up amazing you are an amazing interviewer like thank you it's been such a pleasure to talk to you honestly I've wanted to do this for so long so thank you for making the time And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. So do make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my next book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about, you guessed it, money, and which you can pre-order now using the link in my show notes. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at OtegaUagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. Thank you once again to our episode sponsor, Aurelia Skincare. Don't forget, you can get 20% off all the products on their website, even the ones that are already discounted, by using the code IDC20 at www.aureliaskincare.com. Do be sure to check them out.